the old pilot's plain tales. The Ian Black interviews part two, where we hear about Ian's work as a publisher and photographer. Whose idea was it to publish your first book and um, how does it compare with your latest creations? Well, I, uh, I met a chap called Dennis Baldry who worked for Osprey Publishing in Longacre in London and they were starting a, uh, a series of colour series books called um, just the Osprey colour series books, I guess, and, and they were Fast Jets and Jet Combat and a guy from Bimbrook had done one and so I had amassed a reasonable collection of photographs and then I got a commission to do the book and I think at the time it was maybe £2,000 to do the book, the commission, which was you know, a reasonable amount of money. It was enough to buy yourself a decent camera and enough film <clears throat> to produce a book. So it, it wasn't uh, an insignificant amount of money. And then from that, um, I published maybe seven or eight more books whilst I was in the Air Force, uh, always with the... Um, the hope that one day I could publish my own book because publishers tend to treat it a bit like yesterday's fish and chips. You know, you've, you've got a book coming out, they produce it, and then the next day they've got somebody else's book coming out. So they then want to move on to that. And so I wanted to do a book which had, uh, in terms of uh, photography, moving up a gear, I guess, into making sure that all the photographs didn't go down the middle of the book, all the photographs were nice and clear, and across the centre spread, no out-of-focus pictures, no marks on them, and no mistakes. So I decided to publish my own books, and it was actually a pretty, pretty simple process of finding a printer, finding a designer, and then doing a lot of the preparation work myself. Interesting. Um, the quality of your first books compared with the ones you do now, um, a lot of difference? Um no, I don't think there is really. I mean, they used to ship out a lot of the printing to Singapore and the Far East. And, of course, in those days, everybody shot on roll film and Kodachrome. Nowadays, everyone shoots on digital cameras. So, you know, if you compare what people can do now with what they could do then, I personally think that Kodachrome is unequal. You you can't beat that sort of depth of saturation and it, almost as if they're 3D. The images sort of have a life to them on their own. I've yet to see uh, many uh, digital photographs that I look at and go, wow, that's amazing. The first thing that comes into my head is that I look at that photograph and go, wow, he's good at Photoshop. I remember a Frenchman talking to me about um, Cote de Rhone wine. And he said to me that, you know, putting wine into oak barrels is like putting makeup on it. And it's just not, it's not the same. And that to me is digital photography. It's, it's all very good and it's great, but it doesn't have that arty quality depth to me that Kodachrome used to have. You think it's adding more to the picture than was really there? Yeah, I mean, I, I just, uh, while you're talking to me about um, books, I've got a new book coming out in uh, a couple of months' time. And, uh, you know, trying to get 150 images all done is very time-consuming. And I sent one image off to um, a guy up in Scotland who's, a, who's an expert at uh, digital manipulation, as it were, and he sent it back to me. He said, yeah, I've, um, I've tweaked some of the colours and it's got some real punch to it. And I took a bit of the cockpit out for you. I thought, yeah, but that's, you know, that was part of the image. It was to show people. And one of the greatest compliments I've ever had is that somebody said to me that the thing they liked about my photography was that it always gave people the impression that they were sat with me in the cockpit. So, and that's what I tried to do. I, I tried to make my images that somebody could be sitting, looking at the book as if they were sat with me in the cockpit 
So I might include a bit of the, the canopy frame or I might include uh, the head-up display because that's what I'm seeing. And I, being very critical, when I look at photographers who do, say, they get a photo shoot with the Red Arrows or they get a photo shoot with the F-35 or the Typhoon, they always go for, you know, middle of the day, sunny picture, um, two aircraft breaking away or banking towards each other, and it's all canned. And I suppose I've been very fortunate and I'm lucky that, you know, I could fly three trips in a tornado um, in the middle of October and I'd go, well, I'll take two shots in the morning, there's a nice bit of light, and I'll wait till the evening, there's a nice sort of dusk evening light, and I'll take some shots with a bit of burner in in the evening. And I didn't have to wait for that one shot. So what were some of the most difficult photographic situations you've had to deal with? I guess it's always the ones where you get where you get a commission to take a photograph. Uh, I've had you know quite a few commissions where I've been asked to take photographs. Um, in particular, I got asked to take um, some shots for Breitling um, Aerospace uh, of a chap who was going to be doing some wing walking off a Stearman, and you know that required um, me getting the, the aircraft and this Chinese gentleman on top of a Stearman doing some wing walking shots with a famous English country house in the background. So that that was, you know, they all had all the ducks had to be lined up there and the weather had to be perfect. And again I've done some PR shots of Virgin Atlantic, you know, and if you get a Boeing 747 in the middle of the North Sea and you're flying in a an L39 or something, it's not an inexpensive uh, project you're doing there and if you mess it up, you know, there's not a second chance. Um I I had to do a shoot um for a famous RAF officer, Air Marshal Sir Patrick Hine, he was leaving the Air Force, and they'd arranged a photo shoot with a Harrier leading, two uh, Hawker Hunters, two McDonnell Douglas Phantoms, and a Lightning from uh, British Aerospace, and they were going. It was going to fly once over High Wycombe over the headquarters, but the weather was appallingly bad. Um, we eventually got all the the six or so aircraft to form up in formation, and we had to get a shot. And even though it was sort of 4K viz and a thousand foot cloud base, I still had to produce the goods. I couldn't say, well, I'm really sorry, but the weather's bad and the, all the pictures are blurred. So, you know, you've just got to, I guess it's experience. You know that whatever the weather, whatever the, the time of day, you've got to produce the goods. That must be real tough. Anywhere photography has unique challenges. What are some of the technical problems you have to deal with? The biggest thing really is um, the weight of the camera. Uh, that can be, you know, a kilogram, which under 6G becomes 6 kilograms. Uh, glare is a is a big uh, problem. You know, if you have a canopy that's half an inch thick of perspex, you can get a lot of glare inside it. No-nos are using a polarizing filter in the air because that then picks up all the, the greens and blues of the perspex. Um, I, I don't do many photographs uh, air-to-air of things like Spitfires and Hurricanes, and that requires a slow shutter speed to, to blur the prop. Otherwise, you end up with a, a frozen prop and it looks like the engine's failed. So that's a difficult thing. Same with helicopters. Um, also, a thorough briefing is a really important thing because you know often um, there's a massive ego uh, comes up when you fly with particularly fighter pilots and you're going to do an air-to-air photo sortie and you want to take a picture of a guy coming next to you and he's going to do a knife edge, or you want to pull into the vertical and you want him to get a roll towards you. He's always going to try and, and go that little bit further and, and make his picture with him in his aeroplane the really the, the really coolest picture you've ever seen. So they always tend to, you know, egg the pudding, as they say. And it's very 
very important to make sure that you say to them, just stick to the brief and don't do anything that I haven't briefed because it'll probably kill us both or, or more than both of us. So yeah, briefing is the most important thing, I guess. And, um, and, and the, you know, picking the best camera lens you, you can afford. So we've got lots of listeners who enjoy aviation photography. Um, what advice would you give some of them to improve their results? Um, I'd, I'd say keep plugging away. I mean, uh, it's actually uh, quite heartwarming to me that I, you know, through doing books myself as opposed to through publishers, I've met a couple of people, uh, a guy called Simon and a, guy, a girl called Joe, and they both started photography, maybe because of me, I don't know. And their, their, their work was... Um, mediocre at the beginning but now they produce really exceptional photography you know and uh, simon works in, a, in an industrial area he produces some really lovely black and white stuff joe's done air to wear so you know it's not a question of um giving up if you don't think that you're you're good enough because you, you will eventually you'll get there in the end now, Ian, do you have one particular photo that you took and looked back on as an example of your best work? Yeah, I have several. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that actually, that that was trying to be amusing and witty. But I do have um, maybe two photographs that uh, stand out above all the others for various reasons. One, uh, if I can um, ruin your question by having two answers. One was a, a, a photograph of a lightning firing a missile. And um, it's quite a long-winded explanation, but I was shooting on a large format camera with no motor drive. So literally, you know, you have one press of the shutter, you wind it on and you have another shot. I had 12 exposures. We were sat in Cardigan Bay and it was the sort of the typical beautiful, uh, I wouldn't say English summers, it, maybe it was actually February. So it was sort of big puffy clouds, lots of bright light, lots of dark sea, but we were shooting into sun. So we had a missile firing aircraft on our left. I was flying in a Hawk uh, from Valley. And as the guy um, got behind the flare to fire his missile, he called uh, what we would normally call the standard call and he'd go firing, he'd pause, he'd go firing, he'd pause, and he'd go now. And there'd be a slight pause, he'd squeeze the trigger. Now, as a fighter pilot, you know that when you squeeze the trigger, there's something like a 0.25 second delay and then the missile will come off the rail. So I had to shoot into sun with my large format camera and then anticipate that when he called firing, firing now, I'd pause for 0.25 of a second and then I'd squeeze the trigger and then I'd hopefully get the missile coming off the rail. Now looking into sun, he was banking at about six degrees of bank. He fired a missile from his right missile rail and I pressed the trigger and then I waited for what would seem like, whoa, two weeks. Because that's how long it took to get the film back. So I waited my two weeks. My large format film came back and I had two pretty average images. And then the one image when I pressed the trigger, the missile had just come off the rail. It was doing Mach 1.6 when it came off the rail. It was literally maybe four feet in front of the rail. It was right by the radar of the aircraft. The rocket motor had ignited, and that ignition on the rocket motor lit up the underneath of the aircraft. So I now had a shooting into sun picture with the image of the aircraft now lit up falsely by the rocket motor with all these big puffy white clouds behind it and then this huge great flame out the back of this red top. And it was perfectly pin sharp 
and it was just that one image that I got off one roll of film. So that, to me, I guess, is my my image of my life. That's my Andy Warhol moment. Wow. Um, you've published published a new book of photographs featuring one of my favourite fighters, the F4 Phantom. So the photography, I've looked at it, it's stunning, Ian. But uh, um, you don't hold back any punches about the UK Phantom. Can you tell us a little about, about that? Well, I, I thought your favourite aeroplane was the F3 Tornado, but I... <laughs> <clears throat> well, as, um, as we've both grown older, I have uh, probably learnt more about the F4 Phantom than I ever knew when I flew it, and uh, like you did. And um, when you're 21 or 22 and you're flying around a Phantom, you don't think much really about how it works or how it came to be, and... I did a, a book for Haynes on the Haynes Manual series on the F4 Phantom about how the Phantom actually works. But part of the book involves um, the how did we buy the Phantom, and that's a book in itself. But it just it was staggering beyond belief that we took an aeroplane, which was the Phantom, the F4J, that worked perfectly well, and we decided that we would anglicise it and put British engines in, British radar, British inertial systems in it, and we basically, excuse my French, we just buggered it up, really. And we took a perfectly good aircraft and made it 10 times as expensive and made it far less performant than it ever was before. And I uncovered a piece of um, paper in some sort of... It wasn't a classified magazine. I won't, I won't uh, try and lie to your readers and make it into some story it wasn't. But it was in the, the Flying Review of 1963. And it was Rolls-Royce, and they went to the U.S. Navy, and they said, look, we've got this engine, the Spey engine, which we're going to put Rehe in, <clears throat> and you could actually fit that to the F4J Phantom, and then you could operate your F4Js off much smaller carriers. And so McDonnell Douglas said, yeah, that would be a really good idea, and maybe we could put them into all our F4Js and maybe the F4Bs. And Rolls-Royce are thinking, wow, this is going to be an order for like thousands and thousands of engines. And, of course, what happened in the end was that the RAF bought their Phantoms, and they put the Rolls-Royce engines, but the Navy said do you know what? I think the J79 is just good enough as it is. So we'll stick with the J79, thank you. So we got sold an aircraft that was, uh, you know, it wasn't as good as the F4J, that's for sure. It had its good points, but certainly um, when you look at the development of the F4K and the F4M, boy, did we do some messing around with what was a perfectly good bit of kit. Yeah, sad, isn't it? Um, now, finally, Ian, you've been lucky enough to fly... Uh, two remarkable airliners, the Airbus A340 and now the Boeing 787 Dreamliner. From uh, your perspective as a pilot, um, how do they compare? Well, I mean, I, airline flying was never something that was going to be top of my list, but it has grown on me as I've uh, grown older. I, I did love the Airbus. I loved the Airbus 340. Um, the 340-300 was definitely underpowered. That, that was... Um, for sure, even with four engines. The 34600 was massively overpowered, and that was a lovely aeroplane to fly. Maybe, uh, if I was being picky, the 34600 was a little bit on the edge, I would say, of fly-by-wire technology in, in the terms of you could get full back stick when you needed a little bit more sometimes. The A330, which I only flew for a year and a half, I actually... If I was still on the Airbus, I would probably love flying the A330 more than anything else. It was an aeroplane that I thought was the best blend between um, fly-by-wire and seat-of-the-pants flying. And only I, I only know that because having flown the 340-600 for 15 years or whatever it was, 
I flew a 330 into Antigua, I think, one day, and I took the autopilot out, took the auto thrust out, and I just hand flew it in there, and I could actually really get a feedback of adding a little bit of power and then going above the glide path, taking a bit of power off, and just almost like going back to flying a jet provost. It was actually, you know, if you wanted to make an Airbus fly, fly by wire and automatic, you could do. If you wanted to take everything out and fly like a real airplane, you could do that as well. Excellent. How about the Dreamliner then? Well, uh, that's um, that's actually taken longer to get used to than the Airbus for various reasons. Uh, there's some bits of it which are brilliant. There are other bits which I think Boeing could really um, take a lesson or two out of Airbus. And strangely enough, you know, it's it's things like not having a side stick. That to me, you know, is very very 1920s. Having a, a center yoke where you can't cross your legs, you can't have a table. Just it's like flying a B17. Other things which are really nitpicky, I guess, are the seat is not as comfortable as an Airbus. And that's really important. When you're sitting there for 11 hours, you need to have a comfortable seat and one which is not overcomplicated. It's just somewhere where you're going to do your work. Um, but having said that, it's um, it's an amazing aircraft in terms of performance, in terms of fuel burn. It sits at 0.86, which is um, doesn't seem much if you're flying an Air 4 Phantom. But actually, when you're flying an airline and everyone else is going past a 0.82, all of a sudden you realize it makes, you know, it might only be 20 minutes, 30 minutes off a, off a journey, but if it's an 11-hour trip, 30 minutes is, is quite a big deal. For sure. Now, um, finally, uh, I wanted to thank you very much indeed for giving us your time. How can people find you, uh, particularly on social media, and more importantly, where can they find your publications, and particularly your latest one? Well, uh, my books are done through uh, www.firestreakbooks.com com, which is the same as the the missile fire streak. Uh, I use um, Instagram to uh, to humour my wife, and I mouse blankets on Instagram, but I had no idea why. I use Twitter occasionally, and uh, I should do more on Twitter. Or I'm on Facebook. If you look at Facebook, I've got a fire streak books page, and I try and keep that updated with a with a modern picture or a picture of a, a jet aircraft every couple of weeks or a couple of days or so. The the name of your latest book. The name of my book is going to be called Zinc. I've done uh, Lightning Volume 1 and 2. I've done an F4 Phantom book. Uh, Zinc is a slang word the French use for jet or fighter. So it's going to be called Zinc in the days before stealth. So it's going to cover Lightnings, Phantoms, F-18s, F-16s, F-15s. Also, uh, when I flew the MiG-29, Su-27, F-104s, Mirage 2000 a lot, and... uh, what else? Tornado F3, Tornado GL1, pretty much everything. So there'll be something for everybody there. Buccaneers, Jaguars, Harriers, everything. Can't wait to see it. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Cheers, Ian.